1: Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Before we dive into today's interview, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And if you want to drop us a line, you can send an email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. If you are looking for book nerds swag, we do have some t shirts for the podcast available on our Overdrive shop you can go to shop.overdrive.com and check those out. With all of that out of the way, let's get into my episode today with Mike Elbow. My guest today is the author of the novels Hornito and The Underminer, The Best Friend Who Casually Destroys Your Life, co-written with Virginia Heffernan, as well as the novella The Junket and memoir Spermhood, Diary of a Donor. His articles and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Magazine, GQ, Departures, W Magazine, Ted, Ted. El Decor, Southern Living, AARP, and numerous others. He has written a horoscope column, a love advice column, and was the critical shopper columnist for the New York Times. He's a writer, performer, and here to talk about his new book, Another Dimension of Us, out January 17th. It's Mike Albo. Mike, welcome. Hey there. Thank you so much for coming on to talk with me about your new book, Another Dimension of Us.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's really I, I can talk about this book forever. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, good. We've we've definitely got forever to talk about it. So, to start us off, could you tell my listeners a little bit about another dimension of us?
0: Sure. It's about um, it's it's been called a speculative romance okay. um, and science fiction, supernatural kind of story about queer kids from different time periods who find a book on how to astrally project. And, um, and they do, and it kind of it screws up their lives <laughs> and they have, they have to kind of travel t- through the astral plane to help each other. Um, yeah.
1: It's it's kind of like, oops, learned how to astral project. Hilarity ensues. Exactly. Uh, only the hilarity is horror. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you are going through um, space and time, basically from the period in the eighties where the messaging about the AIDS crisis is beginning and we are looking at a young gay boy who doesn't necessarily know his truth yet and he's kind of hopelessly in love with his best friend who is he is he returning his advances or is he just kind of like vaguely you know like is that just his personality and it's also the 80s and you know cleverly our, our main character's last name is Gay, so he's already being made fun of for that, but also, you know, and then we also have this wonderful time jump into 2044, where we see how much our world has changed, but also kind of remained the same. Mm-hmm. and we have our our next kind of group of characters from there. But before we dive too deep into that, i want to I want to talk about your process a little bit. Sure. What was it like when writing this book? like from the from the like ideal setup of do you have music or background noise? What are your snacks? like I, I want to know all
0: of it. <laughs> That's so great. I love that question. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you know that uh, it's sort of um uh, this book kind of came. I knew, I, knew, I knew where I was going to go with it um, when I started. I kind of knew what the ending was going to be like. Um, but everything in the middle, I kind of didn't know. It, um, I don't want to say the pandemic was a great thing to happen because it wasn't. But, um, but I, I was kind of locked in my apartment um, for th- three months uh, and had time to focus on this and also had time to remember being a teenager, being a 14-year-old in my room, in my bedroom, listening to Kate Bush, and with nothing else to do it except write poetry. So there was a there was this sort of the um, the emotional uh, the emotional grounding for being a, a teenager again was sort of inside me, um, and it, and it was being reflected on the outside. And so I, I sort of started with that, and um, because I had this kind of almost self imposed retreat, like like we all did. Um, I had the ability to really, really dig into this um, and and to also dream about it. Like I, you know, I, I remember going to sleep at night and and I'd have to keep a notebook by my bed and be like, oh my God, Jade does this, you know, Jade goes to a club. You know, I, I had these ideas of different characters and they would just sort of, you know, kind of come out. Um, and, the, you know, process wise, I would say, um, you know, as much as I'm saying that, and I always have to give myself my own advice. Like when you're writing up something of this magnitude of this size, the only way you're going to answer questions is by sitting your ass down and writing it. So you really have to get to that chair. And um, so at, I would say um, my, you know, I'm so jealous of writers who are just like, I wake up in the morning and I feel so wonderful. I'm the opposite. My brain doesn't start working until the evening. And so I kind of start, if I can get sitting down at like five, five to seven is a good time. And then later in the night. So, uh, so every day, at least for two hours, I would be punching things out.
1: It sounds like the pandemic was kind of the whole period of this book about how long did you work on another dimension of us?
0: Um, I'd say I started concertedly, um, around November, 2019. Then, um, so I started with kind of like those first chapters came out around November. Then, um, there's another project I was working on that ended. And then I, um, really focused on this in the, in the spring of 2020. Um, and, and I'd say, a, a, a a really sloppy, huge, way too much draft came out first. And then, uh, and then I started working on it. So, so from 2019, I'd say until now. That's, that's
1: quite a bit of time to just kind of sit with so many different sources of inspiration. So it sounds like part of it is you had, you had that, what was the initial spark? Because if you were having the random wake up, write down what you thought of in the middle of the night, you know, in yeah. the pad back next to your bed, where did the, kind? because you said you were drawn to what the conclusion was going to be. Mm-hmm. What brought that about? And. What were some of your other points of inspiration?
0: Yeah, um, well, initially, so, so I've I've kept this collection of quote unquote new age titles um, for a long time. I have a whole shelf of these uh, occult books, um, which I love and which I consider sort of kitschy, but at the same time, I sort of love them and believe in them too. Um, I think, I think as a queer kid especially one who grew up in the eighties, that's, we, we all gravitated to those occult books because they showed a different type of world than the world we lived in, you know? Um, so we, a lot of, I think it's a very queer thing to, um, to gravitate towards ESP. And like back when I was a kid, it was Bigfoot, you know, that was the trend. Um, but so I have all these books and, uh, that I've collected over the years. And one of them is this book called The Art and Practice of Astral Projection by Ophiel. He, it's this book on how to astrally project, and I've always kept it around, and I've always been like, this is such an interesting book. And I think my initial my initial um, inspiration was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if people found this book and learned how to use it and, you know, what would happen? And I've always also loved the idea of the power of books themselves and, like, how books are spells and books are energy, and especially books of poetry really... Um, transport you to the author um I, I i mean particularly with poets poets i feel like you can connect with a poet through their work um so i just about the power of books in general kind of turned me on you know uh and then uh, you know I, i'm not going to not, I'm not going to not deny, I don't know if that's the right thing, to say um, that Tommy is very autobiographical, that character is very autobiographical for me, uh, being a, being a kid who was gay in the 80s, you know, dealing with the AIDS crisis at a certain age, and, um, but the other characters really came to me, and they, and, and, and they wouldn't let me go, and and they, uh, like, Pris um, came out of nowhere, and I just felt like I had to write this, this, this girl, um, and I was like, I can't believe I'm, I can't believe I'm daring to write, a, uh, a person of a different gender and race and experience, but I was like, I'm going to do it. And, uh, so I did.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, immediately kind of taking yourself out of your, your comfort zone and, and kind of that safe space of, of your own experiences in writing. Yeah. And, I could not agree more as, as a queer kid from the, the late nineties, mm. uh, my collection of <laughs> my collection of occult and new age books is also yeah, expansive. Funny? There's just something about it. That yeah. Like, I, once you said there's something kitsch, but I also wholly believe in that's, it was like, mm, yep, yeah, that's it. Nail on the I, head.
0: <laughs> totally. And, and I really, you know, I, I maybe at the bottom line is that it really is a a chance for a kid growing who grows up gay or queer um, or trans or anything being like, this is the world I'm supposed to live in shit. And then you're like, and then you are like, where else, what other possibilities are there? Um, Especially uh, you know, when um, when religious practices don't offer any comfort Um, when spirituality, as it might appear to you first, doesn't look like it's comforting to you. You know, there's these, other windows that you want to walk through, you know?
1: The opportunity to like you already feel othered to explore and learn that there are others, there yeah. are other practices. It's an eye-opening moment that I think you know, we all have to kind of play with at some point.
0: Totally. And I think it was it was a it was a theme that kind of came to me while I was writing this book about history itself and how when I was growing up, I wasn't really. You know, I, I was also writing this during um during the murder of George Floyd and the, the the awakening for many white people of the of the of the lack of education we received about African American history. And so I was really thinking a lot about how how we don't how when I was growing up, I wasn't taught history <laughs> very well. It was always all these facts and figures and Tommy's Teacher in of in when he was a child is like you know this sort of m- masculine guy who's just like wars and st- statistics and he's like what about people who are surviving bombings what about how you know and and then and then in the future Pris's teacher is a much more connected teacher and uh and so I was really thinking about like how how history you know one one good one thing that's important I think for me is to And what I hope other people understand is that your feelings uh, are the same feelings that people were feeling throughout time, especially as a queer kid. Your, your, your queer feelings are timeless. And like what you felt, what you're feeling right now is something that someone felt 30 years ago, 100 years ago, and, um, and we connect through history in that way, you know, so I was kind of that became kind of a theme while I was writing this.
1: That that absolutely illuminates the, the focus on history in the mm-hmm. book because there is like these, these really powerful moments where it's just like, let's throw in the things that we do all share. Now, of course, you mentioned, you know, the book you've been holding on to for a while, but how did you decide to start incorporating astral projection? Then kind of from there, do you feel like the time from Tommy to Pris is linear or do you think that's a different
0: dimension? World building is hard and time writing time travel is really hard. And I can't, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? Uh, and I think um, so I did have to come up with some ground rules. Uh, lucky for me, I have a friend who is an energy healer who um, is a very an intuitive, I suppose you could call him. And he, he, uh, he sort of helped me. I had, I had a lot of uh, authenticity readers um, for this book. Um, some that the publisher got for me, um, three different readers uh, uh, to read for the the black experience, the Filipino experience and the Latin experience of of, of several of the characters. Um, but also I wanted to have my friend Scott Clover read it for the astral projection experience. Cause he was like, you know, if, if there's an intuitive kid out there, I want that kid to really feel it's quote unquote realistic. So there are some, and then I also read the book, a, a couple books, one by um, Aaron Pavlina, who is a sort of foremost astral projection uh, expert, uh, traveler. <laughs> um, and there are some ground rules or some some aspects of astral travel that, um, that I learned. Uh, and there are, you know, there's, so I took that, you know, at, at least I had some kind of like research, knowledge base to pull exactly. from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then from there I was like, but, you know, I'm going to make this astral plane its own thing. And so I, I kind of, and and also in the back of my mind was like, you know, there's nothing I loved more when I was a kid than A Wrinkle in Time, all the Narnia books, like, like kids going into a weird world, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Let's just it's like a, it's like a, a theme old, as old as children's literature. So I really wanted that kind of aspect as well. So there was a, there was the feeling that I wanted to make it an adventure, make it something that really the pages turned. Um, and also I just love weird worlds. So that was really fun to do. Um, and then in terms of, of linear time, I, you know, that's one thing that, that my friend Scott Clover kind of suggested to me was like, well, you know, Oh, I guess during the same time, that's when the idea of the the alternate universes or multiverses was coming out in popular culture. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, multiverses. Like, this is is linear, but could also be a multiverse, you know?
1: I don't feel like you ever make a distinct call out that you're saying, like, oh, no, this is what Tommy's world looks like in several decades from now. It's very much just like, we are in the 80s, we are in 2044, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, the the experiences of the past that are called out from priss in her timeline don't necessarily align with you know what would be coming from tommy's world so i love the idea of like this could all be one plane this Mm -hmm. could be you know several different kind of worlds colliding together because right there is that astral space Mm -hmm. there's kind of what i think of as our default world and Mm -hmm. then there is priss's experience which is so different um but before we continue authenticity readers. Can you tell the listeners a bit about that?
0: Yes. Uh, I think they're also called sensitivity readers, but, um, but they are readers, uh, that, that read your book for, um, just to make sure that you're, you're depicting, um, the experience of, of other people, not, not like yourself, um, with authenticity. And, and to be honest, as a white cis gay male. I was terrified about these reading, readings at first because I was afraid I was going to do something wrong, um, especially when I'm writing a Black character and a Latinx character and a Filipino character. But I have to say my reading, my experiences with these readers was so great and so helpful. They were so kind and, uh, and uh, really helpful. Uh, just to, to even the smallest thing, like there's a scene where we go into, R- Renee, um, the love interest for Tommy is Argentinian. And we go into his home and his um, parents are very lovely, wonderful people. And they serve empanadas uh, for dinner. And my reader was like, well, there's, there's sweet empanadas and there's savory empanadas. Like you should make sure that you tell. And I was like, great, that's so smart. You know, these little touches, you know, it was a gratifying experience and also a, a really valuable experience for me to have those readers. We've talked
1: about some of the characters already. We've we've hinted back and forth, but you've got quite a collection of them, both in the eighties and in, in the 40s. Seems so funny to say, <laughs> thinking forward. But yeah. what is your process for creating kind of main characters and secondary characters? I know you mentioned some of them truly just were like they came to you and yeah. were fighting to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Tommy being like kind of autobiographical mm-hmm. but when you start fleshing out a character when you start kind of deciding what their traits are going to be and how you're going to deliver them in your work what is what does that look like for
0: you I don't know if there's a I don't know you know I don't like draw them first and then I, I'll, I'll just tell you how they they came out all in all different ways yeah. uh, this time I'd say um in retrospect you know like I said Pris really was very Pris sort of knocked on the door of my head and was like, "I'm here. You know, you're going to write me." Um, and then when I was developing Pris, I kind of knew I wanted her to be—I knew I wanted her to be a lesbian. I knew I wanted her to be um, like to, to be different looking, um, to be outcast. I was overall. I was like, "How are kids going to be? Who are the outcasts going to be in 2044? And what are they going to? What are their experiences like?" And another rule that i had for myself was you know no matter how much we change you know we could we could be so much more open minded about race and gender but there's still going to be popularity and there's still going to be outcast kids it's just that is just that is as old as time and and it's just going to happen so that was kind of like my thought and then i started thinking about chris looking a different way and i had a few different ways that she looked we finally settled on this skin that ha- that has stripes <laughs> that um she is sort of like maybe a maybe a form of vitiligo that um that's still around in two thousand and forty four. And then I was thinking about, you know, tommy is Tommy's in love with Renee. Um and i w- I don't think Pris is in love with her best friend Jade, but what Pris is experiencing with Jade is watching her best friend from childhood become beautiful and become popular and kind of start pulling away. And that is an experience that I think happens to a lot of 15 year olds or a lot of people in high school happened to me. Like when you, when you lose your friends and that whole heartache. So I really wanted to kind of depict that. And then Jade kind of formed from that energy, from that dynamic. Um, And Jade, Jade pretty, was pretty easy to write to. I don't want to say easy, but they sort of jumped out to me as well. Um, You know, like a a gorgeous, a, a, a young person coming into their looks Mm-hmm. who who, as as intelligent as Jade is, is sort of like, "But wait, now I can go to all these clubs and all these people are paying attention to me, and I can, you know, um experience what it is to be beautiful, you know, a person who just
1: becomes effortless one day, yes, and then is recognizing the the ease that
0: they now kind of are afforded right. and And that feeling like I don't need, you know, Chris is immature. I'm, I'm going to be mature now, you know? Um, And so that whole thing, and then, you know, and then it comes back to bite Jade in the end, and they realize how important Chris is in in their lives. But, um, but so there was that kind of, I I would say like these sort of um, these sort of energies between people were really the first uh, kind of wave. And and I would just add to that, that Dara who is uh, best friends with Renee and Tommy in the 80s she, uh, she was almost visual for me first, because I remember this girl in my high school who was girl. I didn't really know her that well, but I remember one year, like sophomore year, she looked one way and then she came back and she was all decked out in new wave and had really cool hair. And I was like, Oh my God, look at her. She changed the way she looked. She looks so cool. And, um, and so I had, I really had that, that person in mind when I was like creating Dara and then Dara just reminds me of so many of my friends from high school, the, 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 the best friend the the new wave best friend who would say what you felt and was brave enough to say what, what you felt as a queer kid um those those strong women that were friends with you in high school that would be like shut the fuck up to someone who is bullying you or something that that sh- sh- she I was like, okay, Dara, Dara's done. I know what, I know who Dara is, you know? The the
1: powerful alt friend that has yes. your back every step right. of the way. Totally. <laughs> that brave friend, you know? The bullying element. Yeah, The idea that in 2044, we can almost like, that, that their society almost laughs at the idea of um, having an issue around gender, around self-acceptance, around um, identities. Uh, but you can still make fun of someone for the way that they look, even when it's out of their control. I know you said it, it felt to you like something that was there has was there before will always be there. Yeah. But why?
0: Why is it still there? I, I, I don't want to be a downer, but I feel like I think it's just human nature for people to create clicks and for people to create outcasts. And it's just the way humans are built it's just some sort of weird tr- tribal thing I don't know what it is
1: yeah the kind of hive mentality and yeah there's always got to be something wrong with the future to still give you hope for the future
0: that's such a good way to put it I really I, that's, I really like that it's it's like you can't you can't take your eye off the utopia you've got to make sure that you just got to keep your critical eye to make sure that people everyone's Accounted for, and that every feeling is is known. And you know, when I when I was beginning the book, I talked to uh, several young people, um, including my niece and nephew, who are now older. But I was like, okay, who who was popular in your high school? You know, and they would be like, oh, you know, the, the basketball players were the popular people in my high school. Oh, the cute gay guy was the mean girl in my high school. And I was like, you know, so either I just I just heard about different types of cliques. Um, and how it's power shifts and, and people, different people are, are the cool people, you know, and, and it's not like all quote unquote popular people or cool people are mean or something. I just think it's, there's always like this dynamic of like, not of the person who isn't that.
1: (laughs) Right. And, and also when you are just as insecure as the person you're making fun of, you're just trying to make sure you keep your seat so that you don't become Lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated US-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let Lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on Lifelock Ultimate Plus at Lifelock.com/slash aware. Terms apply. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. We can't thank you enough for the support now back to the show so in 2044 we find society very different uh, even though it's only like 20 years from where we are now um, they've dealt with the capital v virus that's just how it's listed um, it's killed many they've entered several different kind of quarantines now I'm assuming there's some, you know, some reflection from our our recent pandemic and you know kind of experience overall. But there's also really strong parallels to the AIDS epidemic of the '80s. Um, what inspired your structure um, and phrasing for this future virus, and and why a future virus?
0: Um, well, you know, like I said before, I, I kind of wrote this during the during the darkest days of the pandemic, you know, I I mean, a a first draft kind of happened during, um, during those, that spring. And so uh, obviously it was on my mind. And, um, and while I was writing it and while we were all experiencing it, I was remembering my own feelings from the (laughs) eighties, you you know, I'm, I'm 53. So I, uh, I'm from this age range of, of gay men who I came up with, I I came of age sexually during, in like 1987. So it was like after the development of safe sex and safe sex education. And, um, and I I think the the generation just a year or two years older than me went through an entirely different, more tragic experience than I did. But I feel uh, there was just some, some emotional parallels I was feeling uh, about my experience with the pandemic and that experience, the feeling that it's around the corner, the feeling that anything, it might come to me somehow, all that, all that shame and, and fear. Um, So I kind of had that to, to work with um, emotionally. I think I also thought about this virus being like something that these, these kids are dealing with on a day-to-day basis in their school. Um, And, and uh, what, how that would look, especially if it's something that had kind of was just kind of lurking, um, in their, in their, in their livelihoods, just lurking in their culture. Um, and so they just had to deal with it all the time and they had to like take tests to go to school and sometimes they're in quarantine and sometimes they're not. And, um, there's certain precautions. It's, it's not a good idea to go out too far outside and, you know, you can't see someone for more than like 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that stuff. And so, and, and the constant testing and the constant monitoring and, also, what that would do for, um, you know, and so then there's this excuse for the culture to monitor the kids. And so that, then we get kind of, um, you know, what happens when when, Pris, um, when Pris's diary is shown to the classroom accidentally and how would that be taken by the powers that be and what, you know, how would they diagnose her uh, if they saw her emotional writing um, so that that kind of all sprung out of uh, out of this idea of a of a very monitored school and a very monitored society.
1: Uh, it was so fascinating when I when I hit that scene and she is, um, of course, we avoid spoilers. But when she is taken into the office to be like, we heard what happened today and that your diary was on display. But now we need to talk about what you were talking about and maybe plan some corrective action because maybe you're stalking someone. Maybe yeah. you're maybe you're yeah. unhealthy in and they wanted to add additional kind of like uh, monitoring to her mm-hmm. school equipment and mm-hmm. uh, very fascinating um mm-hmm. that said like looking at such a a technologically advanced time where the suburbs are like burnt out and gone and everyone's in hover cars and yeah. and everything is virtual um did you have any pop culture inspirations or
0: where did you draw your inspiration from for this this future yeah you know, this is my first YA book and this is my first published science fiction book, but, um, my, you know, I've, I've written a couple other novels and I, I've also written comedy. I do performance work and I, I think I've always been obsessed. All my work is, I I have an obsession with commercial culture and advertisement and jingles and just consumerism and how we live in con- consumerism. And so I, uh, I found it sort of natural for me to start expressing um, what the future of consumerism would be like in 2044. Sure. Um, And, but also that, that my astral plane, my depictions of the astral plane is a little bit grosser and polluted and full of kind of creepy commercial stuff (laughs) than your clean, Mm -hmm. pristine, misty world. Um, So, uh, so I I take I draw a lot of inspiration from from uh, from that. I mean one obvious inspiration is Blade Runner because the one of the character's name is Pris, and um and Pris in in all of film and television is my favorite character in all like Pris from Blade Runner is my like my favorite. I love that character so much. So I um so I had to give the Pris, uh, Pris her name. Um and and I'd say, like, uh, I'm trying to think of other inspirations for that for the future.
1: It's like an interesting uh, parallel between what is progress, but also what is progress at the like sake of loss. You know, we can see a destroyed world with the new world just kind of like poorly reconstructed over top of it, like a yeah. like a bad facade that wasn't installed properly, and you can see all of the mess, all of the yuck. And, yes. and that astral plane is what kind of connects the hope of the future in the 80s to the, the painful reality of, of the 40s.
0: Yeah. There, uh, I think also I, I'm sort of, uh, the, the hometown that I'm from is in Springfield, Virginia. And, um, and so it's a, you know, Tommy's suburbs are very 80s suburbs. They're, they're kind of new-ish, there's uh, there's new parts that are being that are being constructed and um, him and his friends and his teacher Sally drive around and Sally's like an older she's an older teacher and she's like, oh my God, I remember when this is all pig farms, you know um, And then and I' you know I've, I've been fascinated about the history of the mall uh, something I've written about in the past and it, you know there's this sort of um, uh, new kind of, thing happening, I think, in America where these mixed use facilities are happening where pe- where people are living inside malls now, you know, um, people are living in I had this idea in the future that that would probably continue, especially if especially if climate change is happening, like safe areas, quote unquote, where, where, that are a little bit more protected um, seem pretty realistic to me. Um, uh, so so Pris and Jade live in these sort of planned communities that have gates and controlled environments, um, they can step outside, but it's, but you live inside these, these, uh, protected areas. This is the safe spot.
1: This is, this is home base, but right now you're seeing a a society of people kind of one on top of another for protection.
0: Right. I mean, which is you know, that's a science fiction tale as old as time. That's like Logan's Run and like, you know, Brave New World and all those books are have protected societies and then the scary outside, you know.
1: Right. What lies beyond the mist kind of
0: yeah. idea. Mm-hmm.
1: So one of our through lines in time is both Tommy and Pierce's poetry. Um, you've already kind of spoken on how poetry feels magical and kind of really connects you to the author and their emotions. Um, what what drew you to this inclusion and what is your relationship with poetry?
0: Um I uh Poetry is my first love. I've written poetry since I was like in second grade. And uh, you know, autobiographical wise, uh I was involved in my school's literary magazine, my high school's literary magazine, the literary magazine's called the Symposium, um, which I, with my brilliant fictionalizing, call it the cornucopia in in another dimension of us. But um, uh, and I had a very um several several really important teachers in my life that were English teachers in my life that um, really encouraged writing. Um, and so uh, the symposium was an important publication for me because it was allowed me to feel like I could publish things, publish my my stuff. Um, and I gave Pris one of my poems, actually. Uh, Pris writes um a poem about mirrors. And that—that's one that I wrote when I was fifteen. It's one of my better ones from fifteen. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, I—I've been—I've been writing about this a little bit about the power of libraries, um, physical libraries. And when I was a kid, um, I really gravitated to poetry. Um, I think because it was easier to look at and like, especially line. You know, poets that had simple lines or like broken up lines. Um, so I was really drawn to poetry as a, as a teenager and, um, and I would go to the library and look for it and just sort of read just the way that the, you know, the great power of libraries is you just sort of let yourself go in them, you know? And, um, and so I, uh, and I really do feel connected with a poet when you read them, you it's, you know, of course that happens with fiction all the time, but, um, it's It's a different
1: kind of like personal when you're yeah. connecting with a poet,
0: yeah it's it's on it's you know with with fiction, there's this idea that you know you the writer's not the in involved sometimes in the book um but uh but with poetry you're the writer is is there with you, it's like a hologram sitting next to you, and so um and i, I also um i it's sort of like a A platform for i have about this book is i really would love to encourage younger people to write down their feelings you know um physically into books and not online and so um and so i you know i gave these characters um renee tommy priss and dara and and jade a a little bit jade 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 used to do this used to write poetry but they um they all write they all write for themselves you know
1: And in notebooks, even in the future. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how, you're already writing, you're already writing prose to have to write poetry. How often were you pulling old pieces? Was it tough to switch
0: between the two? (laughs) It's funny. I, um, well, you know, again, being stuck in your apartment, um, a lot of the poetry I used, that I quoted from different poets was just in my apartment. So I'd be like, oh, there's that Anne Sexton book of love poems. Okay, I'll put that in. Um, oh, there's a Gerard Manley Hopkins book. So um, so I when I was quoting other poets, I I quoted um from my collection of poetry. But um, but the the a big challenge in the book was definitely Renee's poem at the very end. Um, that well, in the beginning and the end that you revisit. And I was like, oh. God, I've got to write a poem. I haven't written a poem in so long, and I was like, "Shoot, this has got to, uh, This is the most pressure." And then I was, then I was like, "Wait, he's fifteen years old, it doesn't have to be that great, as as brilliant as I think Renee is as a poet. Like, he does, it doesn't have to be that great." I was like, "Okay, Theo,
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> such a funny way to have to look at it. The <laughs> the pressure immediately, and then like, oh wait, I'm I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly." <laughs> You talked that you started writing poetry pretty young, but what overall got you into writing? What was, what was the day that you said, I'm going to sit down and just like write a story?
0: I, my friend, uh, I have a friend, Machine Dazzle, who's a costume designer. And he recently said that he originally wanted to be a dancer. And I feel like I might've wanted to dance. And in a way writing was because I wasn't allowed to express myself um, or allowed by society to be as gay as I wanted to be. (laughs) Um, I think maybe, um, writing my feelings down was, um, was a help, like a safer way to start. And so I kept a diary. I started keeping a diary in fifth grade. And, um, and so I was writing down my feelings for, since I was a child. Um, I, but you know that's that's sort of a sad story. I think I think, um, I, think uh, I, I remember just always wanting to rhyme, always wanting to sing songs, always wanting to make things, make little rhythmic kind of phrases. Um, it, so that's I think I've had that kind of urge in me for, since I was a kid.
1: I mean, happy or sad, it's it's the truth. Like that's that that's kind of what helped you.
0: grow into
1: yourself yeah and i think i think that's important for for people to hear that like we all have to find our own safe spaces first
0: totally and and also i also you know love talking to um like one of my favorite things to do is to help other people realize their ideas or or encourage them to express themselves i think everyone has the power and the right to express themselves Mm -hmm. and um and sometimes you learn that you're the the genre that you're good at is clay or the genre you're, you know, that this idea should be a song or, um, so it's, it's, it's always, you know, expression finds its form and, and we all should. Experiment
1: with mediums and figure out what, what is our outlet? Right. You may think you want to write, but when you sit down and it's not working, is it supposed to be lyrics? Is it supposed to be a painting? Absolutely. I love that. I, I love that so much. Now, aside from writing books, you've written for magazines and newspapers, and you're a comedian and performer. What brought you into the world of performing, and when did when did you arrive there?
0: Around in the '90s, I went to University of Virginia for undergrad, and I was totally focusing on poetry. And I was a poet. Went to you know then I went to grad school for poetry, um, and then was I was doing poetry readings and. I started noticing that um, people weren't really paying attention to the poems, but they, they were paying paying attention to be talking between the poems. And I'm sort of like a I'm sort of like one of those people that people laugh when I get on stage, even if I'm saying something heartfelt. <laughs> so, but, so I think I started like, oh, okay. So I have sort of this comedic kind of side to myself, and I started exploring sort of comedic monologues and uh, and performing. Uh, uh, in front of people. Um, and then, and then I sort of learned by doing, uh, f- theatrically how to, how to create characters and, uh, and create scenes and sketches and things like that. So it, I've just been sort of on stage since like 1995 or so. That's when I started getting up in front of people.
1: Hey, that's, that's exciting. It, is it, do you, do you love it?
0: I love it. It's, it's still nerve wracking. It's still, I, I, you know, the life of a performer is weird because you're always like, I'm done. I don't need that anymore. And then, <laughs> and you're like, I gotta get back on stage. And then you're like, that was so much fun. So it's, um, so it's like, it is it is a part of what I do and it's, it's a part of way I express myself. Um, Absolutely. But, it, and a lot of, you know, the first two books I wrote um, were based on performance pieces first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one is the first, that is obviously not performed, um, right? <laughs> so right. you uh, might
1: have a little trouble performing this one. Yeah, live. yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm. You know, I was really psyched. Um, the the publisher, um, uh, the, the the audio version of this book is yes. is an ensemble cast, and so uh. it's. I know. I'm so excited. There's five different people um, reading uh, the characters. That's amazing. I know, and it's it makes me so happy because. Uh, I think it would be a big undertaking for one actor to portray all these different races and genders and yes. characters. Um, so it it really, I'm so thrilled um, that that there's going to be these different voices.
1: What has the process been like for you? How, uh, how in or involved or what have you heard so far?
0: But it's funny. It's, it's a, this is a whole new experience for me. Um, so, um, you know, I was part of the selection of who got to read uh, and we we chose these actors and I, I'm really excited about who we chose um, and they they have been posting online like, or, you know, on social media, like, oh my God, I love this book and I'm so excited I get to be Dara, you know, um, Ferdel Capistrano, that's her, her name. She just wrote this post um, that she's like, here I am going to be Dara and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you're embodying Dara. I'm so touched. It means so much to me. Um, and it, it's, it means so much that, uh, you know, that a a Filipina actress is playing Dara, but also that it resonates with her. It, it means the world to me. Um, so, uh, it's been, it's been really, really great. I've, I've been so happy to have it happen.
1: Now I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the beautiful art on the cover of this book. God, (laughs) I know. Tell me about that.
0: How did, how did that happen? yeah it was it was a really interesting process um both and it wasn't it wasn't smooth it was sort of a it it both internally it was it was it was a it was a challenge for me um well first of all the the cover illustration is by Benjamin Curry and he's this fantastic illustrator fantastic artist um and if you go to his website you really get a sense of his voice and his his vision is so it, it's just perfect for this book because it's he's got this kind of elevated comic book sensibility to him that um that I really really love I think he's an incredible artist and you know at first we you know I I sent him and I guess his team and and my editor um you know breakdowns of the characters and uh and so some of the initial concepts were um we we had to get to this pl- place where i was like okay these kids are dorky they're not <laughs> cool looking you know yeah. they're they're dorky 15 year olds right they are not the cw 15 year olds yes these are these are dorky kids uh, tommy has bad acne you know like they these are kids that are going through shit um and uh so it took a few rounds and then we finally got to that to them but then you know what's really interesting to me personally is i had to deal with two boys being on the cover of my book and i have to tell you it it brought up a lot for me because when i was 15 the idea of queer ya is th- those those three letters are, were uh, did not exist yes? right and oh no the idea of going into a bookstore or a library and picking up a book with two boys on the cover that are obviously in some sort of romantic situation um i would have been maybe beaten up you know right right um, and so when I saw that cover, I think it brought up a lot of a feel, feelings for me about like, I was resistant to it at first to tell you the truth.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. And and then um, my editor, Elizabeth oh, Lee, who is the most amazing editor ever, um, kind of kindly worked me through it. You know, I was like, no, actually, this looks really good. Actually, this is actually important to have these people on the cover. And I had to kind of get, come to terms with it. Like that right. um, I had these, this resistance um just from my own experience. So, um, so it was, it was, a I had to get my way through it. It wasn't like, that's a beautiful cover. It finally came to me, you know, that, that it was. Right,
1: that, that it, like dealing with how important it is, but also that, that part of you, that's always kind of in there going, but you're going to get hurt. You know, that, that fear-based protection that, you know, depending on, on when you grew up is just
0: really, yeah. Really ingrained in there. Yeah. It was and then it's so weird how it came out. It I didn't yeah. expect that response to come out of me, but it did.
1: Hey, it's a it's a good thing to get the chance to challenge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> totally. And thank God for my friends and my editor and for people I... around you that can kind of help you through it, you know.
1: You know, challenging perspectives, always, always important to do. We never expect them to be our own. But... Totally. So you wrote a horoscope column what's your sign? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm a Gemini. I'm a Gemini, Gemini, rising Leo moon. Okay. I'm a yeah. Scorpio, Gemini, Virgo. Nice. It's nice. Well-rounded. Just a fun blend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: what was, uh, what was, was it fun to write horoscopes? There's a part of me that's like, that seems like a dream. What, what it's was that?
0: Hard. like? hard. Oh my God. It, well, first of all, I, I worked with a, with an astrologer who, knew her stuff. And I, so she would send me the information and then I would sort of, yeah, make it readable, make it fun. I it was one of the harder, I've had so many jobs as a freelance writer over the years. Um, but the horoscopes are hard because you're like, oh my God, I have 11 more to do. You know, you, 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 you get, get done to, with one and you, get you get still got to go. Yeah. You get to Scorpio and you're like, shit, I have like four more to do. Like it, and it takes, you know, so and they're like little contained things. Um, so it was, it wasn't the easiest.
1: I I can't imagine it would be, but, uh, <laughs> what, a, what a fun thing to just like have on your resume. It
0: is, it was fun and and it is, it really trains your, um, mind to, um, to have to, it's always good to be able to, to have to encapsulate things into different word counts, you know? So it really taught me how to be like, okay, I have 150 words. Let's do it.
1: Now to start to wrap us up as we wind down to some questions from a nosy podcaster. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading
0: right now? Um, I'm reading. Um, Didn't nobody give a shit about Carlotta, which is a book by James Hanaham. Um, he's a pal of mine and we're going to be actually doing a reading in February together. Um, and it's a book about a black trans woman who gets out of prison after 20 years of being in prison for like some Trumped up stupid charge. I just started it, but I'm loving it, and it it kind of is a bit of like um, a, a Rip Van Winkle sort of story where where Carlotta is in a world that's 20 years later, and so she gets out and she sees cars that are different, and she's just like, "What the hell's going on?" And um, but uh, so it's sort of about this this trans woman's life um, in coming out of jail. It's great. I'm having. I'm loving it. But are you watching anything right now or binging anything right now? Um, oh my God. I just started with my friend. I'm hanging out with my friend uh, at, at, at our friend's house. Um, we just started an interview with a vampire. I know I'm late with it, but I just started it. And, <laughs> and I'm really, lo- I just got to the scene where they're, you know, he sucks his blood for the first time. And they lift in this guy and with their naked butts. Um, it's pretty amazing. And I'm also loving how queer it is. And I'm loving how much. Uh, it, it, I haven't read the book in so long, but I'm remembering the, how beautifully written it is. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of direct lifts of language from it, I think. It, yeah, it just, it It seems pretty well written uh, so far.
1: When I say public library, what comes to mind?
0: Safe space. It's a place, uh, no one ever bullies you in a library. It's a place that you. F- that I feel and I've always felt um, safe.
1: Resources, access, safety—absolutely, yeah. yeah. When you're ordering, you know, on any of your favorite takeout apps, what
0: is your go-to dinner order? I am more of a dinner maker, but okay, I, I uh, I'm a, I'm sort of like a, a beets. I love beets. I love a a salmon. Um, I'm. I'm making this. I've been making this cabbage salad recently that I really love. That has a lot of dill in it. I love dill, but my favorite uh, herb is tarragon. I love tarragon. I
1: I I love to hear. I love to hear that. That like, oh no, I'm a dinner maker, and these are my go tos. This is what I like to taste in
0: food because I know it's like one of my favorite things to do is to put on um, a podcast or something and make dinner.
1: Absolutely, that is that is my self care time.
0: Totally. Where
1: can the listeners find you online?
0: Um, I have a website, mikealbo.net, and uh I have I'm on Instagram at it, but it's at albowike. Um Instagram and Twitter at elbow mike. One day soon I'll be on TikTok. I it's I gotta add it to my thing, but I just can't bear to get my fingers to do it. And and you know, my friends are like, Mike, it's so great. Like and it is. I I, yeah. I, I
1: agree, but also you the the clock disappears from your phone when you open they don't leave the clock integrated so (laughs) you're like i'm just gonna sit here for 20 minutes quick recoup and go to my day and then an hour and a half later you're like okay jesus
0: i know i'm i don't know it's like do i add another thing to my life but um it seems like a pretty great uh world to
1: it is is. it's a it's a super helpful space Mm -hmm. um Now, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like listeners to take away from another dimension of us?
0: Well, I guess I just said it before. It's sort of, um, you know, this is a book about connection. It's a book about, um, I want readers to feel that their emotions and that their feelings are as old as time. And I hope that this helps them feel that way.
1: Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and being on the podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm so grateful for this. It's really been lovely to talk to you.
1: I really appreciate that. I'm so glad you're here, and listeners, remember, another dimension of us comes out on January 17th. So look for that in your bookstores and at your library. And of course, as always, happy reading.
0: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on OverDrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerd is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit EvergreenPodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.